Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. This week on Southcrest Live featuring Dr. David Wilson, we continue our study called Hope, a series in 1 Peter. This week we're in chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. In this passage, the Apostle Peter declares that we can love life and see good days. But for Christ followers, what exactly does that life look like? Specifically, how does this life affect our conversation, habits, and desires? Let's listen in on this week's message, Living Life and Loving It, from Pastor David Wilson. What a great message and song to think of all that the Lord has done to make us be able to come into the presence of God. Thank you, folks, for that music. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, I want to remind you that up to this point, we've talked about a lot of things that God's done for us, but then he talked about living with authority and the government, under the government, and then we talked about in our jobs and then in our families, and then even in the church and how to get along in church, and and the verses preceding what I'm going to read today in verses 8 and 9, chapter 3, talk about being of one mind and having compassion and not returning evil how to, for evil, how to get along together. And then Peter quotes part of Psalm 34. And we're going to talk about how to have a good life, living life and loving it. Would you stand while I read beginning in verse 10? For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that today that you will speak to our hearts, help us to understand what the good life is all about, and that there is no good life without Jesus. And I pray that people would love their life and live in such a way to show the love that they have for you. We ask you now to speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It's not uncommon if you drive through a, great, a big metropolitan area, you may see a billboard that is advertising a new subdivision. And it may say something like, come to the good life or experience the good life by living out here. And it's, the implication is if you buy a lot or build a house and move out into that community, you're going to have the good life. And a lot of people think that if I, if I can live in a good part of town or I can live in a big house or I can have a lot of this or that or get away from town or however you think it, I'll have the good life. But folks, I want to tell you, even though it can have some circumstances uh, bearing on your life where you live, it's not going to create a good life. And, and some people think, well, if my circumstances were to get better, I could have a good life. 
Isn't it amazing that there are a lot of disappointments with certain circumstances and, and there are a lot of disappointments in life. And, and, and did you know the Bible tells us that achieving the good life really is an attitude. It's not what's going to happen to you. I want you to know you'll never experience a good life until you know Jesus as your Savior. It's interesting, though, the disappointments. I read of a lady who went in a toy store and picked up this unusual-looking toy. And, and she asked the clerk, she said, this looks mighty complicated for such a small child. And the, and the clerk said, it's an educational toy. It's designed to adjust a child to live in the world today. Well, how does that work? And the clerk said, any way that they put it together, it's wrong. <laughs> and then there are a lot of people who are trying to think, if I can just get my finances in order, I'll have the good life. Well, Doug Sanders, who's a former professional golfer, said, I'm working as hard as I can to get my life and my money to run out at the same time. If I can just die after lunch on Tuesday, everything will be perfect. Sometimes we can relate to that. Many people have become negative about life. You meet them, it's, you say, how are you doing? Oh, I mean, they don't have to say anymore. It went, oh, all is wrong. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Nothing's good. Nothing's right. I don't like my job. I don't like my husband. I don't like my wife. I don't like my church. I don't like this. I don't like school. I don't like everything. You know, you know anybody like that? Sort of, their middle name is Eeyore. <laughs> Winnie the Pooh and Eeyore. A man was told by a fortune teller, you'll be poor and unhappy and miserable until you're 50. Then what's going to happen? By that time, you'll be used to it. <laughs> and a lot of people have just gotten used to it. A man had his annual physical exam. He was waiting for the doctor's initial report. Doctor came in with all these charts and, and all these notes. And he said, there's no reason why you can't live a completely normal life as long as you don't try to enjoy it. Well, I kind of agree with a bumper sticker I saw one time that said, the only way to get out of bed every morning with a big smile on your face is to go to bed with a coat hanger in your mouth. Some of y'all are beginning to look like you might smile before this day is over. Hey, listen, it's not my fault the government changed the time, okay? I wish they quit messing with it personally. We ought to just start something and we get a grassroots movement. Let's just everybody not change their time. Oh, well, that's not today's message. We're going to talk about loving life and seeing good days. It's hard to do that on a day when you lost an hour of sleep, right? To love life. He says, he who would love life means to love it with intelligence and in corresponding purpose. The thought is, I want a life on this earth that is worthwhile. I don't want to take up space. I want to live a life that means something. And, and the word to see good days means beneficial, not empty. I, I, I want to have a day that's beneficial. I want to have a good day. But a lot of people can't find seem to have a good day. One man told me one day, I said, How, how's your day been? He said, you know, if this day were a fish, I'd throw it back. 
And then, then you see children's books entitled Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. You ever had a day like that? Here he says, he who would or wills to. The present participle means wishing or desiring. He who is desiring to love life. Here's the prescription right here. It's quoted right out of Psalm 34. This prescription's really got two major parts to it. It's, uh, some of it's dependent upon us, our performance, and the other part of it's dependent upon the power of God. So let's look at this prescription. First of all, you'll notice what I'm going to call abstinence in conversation. Verse 10, let him refrain, restrain from his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. The word means you have a natural tendency to do something, you are keeping yourself from doing it. You're restraining yourself. You're refraining from doing that. Your natural tendency is to speak evil. And folks, we don't have to be taught how to do that, do we? We're natural critics. We can naturally speak bad about things. And even when we do it, we try to do it positively. It's my policy to never say anything uh, about anyone unless it's something good. And boy, is this good. Let me tell you what it's going to be. That's kind of how we do it. One man has a plaque in his kitchen that says, Lord, keep your arm around my shoulder and your hand over my mouth. I need a plaque like that. The word evil, don't speak evil. It means base or morally wrong or mean. And the word deceit means to catch with bait. To It refers to anything that is deceiving or misleading or calculated to not give all the facts. Sometimes it's what you don't say. I mean, if you're telling somebody about a story and you don't tell them all of the facts because it makes you look better, that's deceiving. And sometimes it's, it's what we don't say, maybe to get people to think on our side, to think like we will, or to, be, uh, to side up with us against someone. Sometimes we use exaggeration. You always do this. Well, you never do this. We're exaggerators, aren't we? We are. We just are. We have a natural tendency to speak that way. And so we have to catch ourselves and make ourselves think about before we speak. James chapter 3 talks about trying to tame the tongue. And he says, basically, it's impossible. It's easier to tame a wild beast or to steer a ship or to put out a fire. In fact, he calls it a fire, a world of iniquity, an unruly evil full of poison, a little member that boasts great things. Our tongues are a problem. One lady told John Wesley one time, God's given me the talent of speaking my mind. John Wesley said, God wouldn't mind if you buried that talent. <laughs> and I, I love the, the sticker that says, a closed mouth gathers no foot. <laughs> I can relate to that, can't you? The tongue, it's, it's a barometer. Why, why is it so easily... Why do, we, uh, why do we run off at the mouth so easily? Did you know it's an indicator, a barometer of the heart? Listen to what Jesus 
said in Luke 6.45, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Hmm. What's down in the well comes up in the bucket. Psalm 17.3, I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. In that same connection, our prayer should be that of Psalm 19.14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. And listen, now in this day of social media, whether it be Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the other stuff that's on there that I can't name. This still applies. How easy it is now when we disagree with somebody, just spout it off. Send it out there. And yet, it does so much damage. Folks, words hurt other people. That old line we learned, we used to mock when we were kids, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a lie. That's a purity lie. Because I can tell you right now, you, everyone in this room has been hurt. And everyone in the venue and everyone else listening online or wherever you're listening, you've been hurt by something someone said to you. We still carry scars. From children, when people said stuff to us. And for a child of God, we're not supposed to be the ones spewing gossip and evil and running down people and criticizing every way we can just because we have the ability. And even though under the guise of free speech in our country, there are some things we ought not to say. If you're going to have a life without regrets, it's going to start by closing the mouth. At least not speaking evil. And isn't it amazing how sometimes we jump to conclusions, we we hear something or we assume something, and the next thing you know, we've run off at the mouth. A young man came to a pastor and he said, Pastor, I, I, I've been convicted about all of the gossip and all of the things that I've said. And I need to know what, what can I do to, to make it up? How can I undo everything I've said? The pastor said, you go, get, you, you go bring me a feather pillow. Seemed like a strange request. So he went and got feather pillow. And he said, now I want, the pastor said, now I want you to open up the end of that pillow and I want you to scatter those feathers out in the wind. Today would have been a good day to do it. And he did it. And then, then he said, now I want you to go get every one of those feathers and put back in that pillow. He said, that's what happens when you start stuff. You'll never get it all back. So, folks, Peter says, you know what? 
If you're going to love life and see good days, you've got to restrain what you naturally have a tendency to do, and that's to run off at the mouth. How's that for being blunt? Well, there's another negative here. We're not only going to avoid evil speech, there's also an avoidance of evil, to turn away from evil. Verse 11, lean out from. The idea is that we're on guard, we're watching, and when we see a certain path that will lead us to the wrong conclusion, we need to get off of that path. Or if we see something coming down that path that we know is going to harm us, we need to get off of the path to avoid it, to run from it. As John Phillips says, there are some doors a child of God ought never to darken. But we allow ourselves, we allow ourselves now to be bombarded with all kinds of compromising information. Is a television a sin by itself? Is a computer a sin by itself? Is an iPhone or an iPad or whatever smart device you've got, is that a sin in itself? No. Can it take you places you don't need to go? Absolutely. So that's why you've got to avoid the evil part of it, the, the base, the morally wrong. You see, we, we don't look at it the same way anymore. I, I read of a man who went to the doctor. He said, I've been misbehaving and I've been getting into trouble. My conscience is troubling me deeply. Have you got something you can prescribe for me? And the doctor said, you, you want me to strengthen your willpower? And he said, no, I want you to give me something to weaken my conscience. <laughs> well, that sounds like us. Did you know that sin will rob you of the blessings that God has intended for you? Sin robs you. Sin is a temptation, and it looks so good, but when you commit it, it robs you of blessings. It's deceptive. Listen to what Jeremiah 5.23, excuse me, Jeremiah 5.25, your sins have withheld good things from you. Much of the time we don't have good days because we've allowed sin to creep into our lives and we don't confess it and we, and we hide it and we candy coat it. One of the great problems of our present society is that we've watered down sin. Dr. Carl Menninger, a renowned psychiatrist who's 80 years old, wrote a book entitled, Whatever Became of Sin?, Many things that were once considered sinful now don't seem to be quite so bad. Adrian Rogers put it this way. He said, there's no new sin under the sun, but sin that once slunk down the back alley now struts down Main Street. And here's the problem. We've been brainwashed to thinking that God's sort of um, not as concerned about sin as he used to be. That his holiness is sort of watered down a little bit. After all, he is a God of grace and a God of mercy. So he's not concerned about sin. Listen, his grace and his mercy has covered our sin. But he still hates sin. (laughs) 
Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil and put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Anything, young people, listen to me, anything that is contrary to God's word and to the will of God is sin regardless of how socially acceptable it might be. Just because we vote or we in the courts declare something is legal doesn't mean it's not sin. And today, we need to call sin what it is and then dread it like a disease. You've got to make some choices now. Young people, the choices you're making now as a teenager will affect the rest of your life. If you make the choice now, for example, this is just one example. If you make the choice now, I'm going to date a Christian. Then when you meet somebody that you think, man, that's a good-looking person, a good-looking man, a good-looking woman, I'd like to, but you think, but you know, they don't know Jesus, then you've already made that choice. You don't have to worry about it. If you, if you decide now, I'm going to remain sexually pure until I'm married, I'm going to save myself for my spouse, then that choice is made. It will help you when the temptations get so strong. Billy Sunday was a famous baseball player who then became a renowned evangelist and preached until his death in the 1930s. He was noted for thundering against every kind of sin. And I loved his attitude. He said, I'm against sin. I'll kick it as long as I've got a foot. I'll fight it as long as I've got a fist. I'll butt it as long as I've got a head. I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth. And then I'll gum it till I die. Well, that ought to be our attitude about sin. I shouldn't wink at it. I shouldn't tip my hat to it. I should avoid it. There are certain situations that you can, you know when you go into there, you're going to be tempted, whether it's the wrong kind of television movies or uh, movies at the movie theater or on the internet or on the computer or wherever. You know, if I go to this, I, how many times do I use this analogy? And I know it's a silly one, but it still makes a good point. If you're trying to lose weight, and I have been for 62 years. <laughs> True. You don't go into the ice cream shop to see what the flavor of the month is. You just don't. I know better. I'm not going in there. Well... We've got to develop this attitude to lean out from, to avoid it. Listen, I don't want to go there because I know there'll be things that I'll be tempted to do. So why put myself under that kind of scrutiny? Well, then he moves more to the positive. In verse 11, he says, there should be the achievement of good. Let him turn away from evil and do good Agathos, it's the opposite of evil. Something that is good and useful and morally right is something that's done. It, folks, why have we gotten this idea that our Christian life is what we don't do? 
I don't do this, I don't do that. I stop doing this, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't, I don't, I don't. A man came up to Vance Habner, the late evangelist one time, and he said, I'm right with God. I don't drink, I don't cuss, and I don't run with wild women. And Vance Habner says, well, neither does a gatepost. So we've gotten this idea, I'm a good Christian, I'm right with God by the things I don't do. Well, that's part of it, but we're supposed to be doing something. The old adage, the best defense, a good offense. I remember when Lou Holtz was the head football coach of the University of Arkansas, he had one rule to guide his players. That one rule was clear and direct. It consisted of two words, do right. And Galatians 6.10 says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Romans 12.21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Concerning Jesus's earthly ministry in Acts 10.38, it says he went about doing good. He is our example. Titus 3.8, this is a faithful saying. These things I want to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. Hebrews 9.14, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 20, by their fruits, you will know them. My question to you is, what are you doing that's good for the kingdom of God? Let me ask it another way. Is your job, is your school, is your community, is your church, is your city better because you live there? That's the question. Are things better because I have been part of that? See, we, we get this idea as long as I don't do something, I'm all right. But God says, look, I saved you. I didn't save you to sit. I saved you to serve. So when we're doing good things for the Lord, I'm not doing them to be saved. Don't you misunderstand me. I'm not doing works to be saved. I'm not saved by good works, but I am saved unto good works. My life ought to show it. It ought to be seen. It ought to be doing something that's contributing to the kingdom of God. Don't you always feel better when you go help someone especially in the name of the Lord, obviously. When you, when you say, well, you know, I went to see so-and-so and, and who was sick or did this or in the hospital or whatever, and I really, but I wound up getting the blessing. How many times have you said something like that? Well, you begin to love life because you're doing good. This is one time when you can be a do-gooder. <laughs> but not only are we doing good, but there's also an aspiration for peace, a seeking peace. Look at verse 11. Let him seek peace and pursue it. 
The word seek means to seek diligently and pursue means to press forward, following eagerly. And the word peace refers to right relationship with people and with God. You could say it, he must try very hard to live at peace with others. Christians are peaceful people. Doesn't mean we don't ever have any disagreements, but we disagree peacefully. Y'all remember the old cartoon Archie? You may not remember it or not. There was a, a big, dumb looking jock, help, uh, muscular guy named Moose. Moose was in the principal's office. Moose, tell me what you've learned in school about settling disputes. <laughs> Moose grinned. And he said, uh, well, I used to settle disputes with my fist, but now I use this, pointed to his head. The principal smiled, said, I see, you mean you're using your brain? And Moose said, nah, I just butt him with my head now. <laughs> Christians don't butt heads. Not that way. Now, we can disagree and we can have healthy debate, but there's still a peace among believers and there should be a peace in our heart we should seek peace and you don't have to be in a beauty pageant to want peace yeah. <laughs> Romans fourteen nineteen says therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another Hebrews twelve fourteen pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord Folks, we live in a world of hostility. It's getting worse. It's getting worse. We live in a world where everybody seems to be at each other's throat. And I want you to know there'll never be peace on this earth until the peace of God is in everyone's heart. So let's think about this peace for a minute. The foundation of being a peacemaker is to be at peace yourself. So how do, you, how do you become at peace? How do you be at peace with yourself? Listen to Romans 5, 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see... When you have God's peace in your heart, it makes all the difference. John 16, 33, Jesus said, these things have I spoken unto you that in me, in Jesus, you might have peace. In the world, you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. cheer. I have overcome the world. I can tell you time and time again, when somebody realizes that they need to be, be saved, they, they're separated from God. They know they're lost. The Holy Spirit's revealed it. You don't have Christ in your life. And they turn from their sin in repentance and ask God to forgive them. And by faith, they trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. He paid the price for their sin on the cross. He rose again the third day, defeating death and sin. And they trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. And they pray and receive the Lord. And you know what? The first thing they usually say is, I have peace. You're at peace with God. That's the only way to get peace with God. It's through Jesus Christ. 
So the foundation of your peace begins with a relationship with Christ. Then having that personal foundation, we're to seek to live in peace in those around us. Romans 12, 18 says, if it is possible as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. The implication there is not everyone's ever going to be at peace with you, but you do everything that you can to make it peaceable. There's some people that'll never be at peace with me, it doesn't seem. But I'm going to do all I can to try to be peaceable toward them. Not that I'm better, but I know that I've done all I can do to make peace with some people. They're not going to do it. However, God expects us to give everything we have in the effort to achieve it and to bring peace. But being a peacemaker also has one more important aspect. We are to try to bring other people to peace with God. 2 Corinthians 5.20, now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you in Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, be at peace with God. The only way there'll ever be world peace is when everyone acknowledges the God of peace. Not a God, the God of peace. Only through Jesus. So, we see our part of this prescription. Let's watch what we say. Let's avoid evil. Let's do good. Let's seek peace. But how in the world do you do that? That didn't come naturally to any of us. So, there's got to be an acknowledgement of God's presence. And I want you to see this in verse 12. You see God's omniscience. You see his providence. You see his justice. I love this phrase. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. God is not oblivious to your circumstances. Some of you are thinking, my life's not going real well. God doesn't care. Yes, he does. He knows everything you're going through. His eyes are on the righteous. He never quits watching you. He never takes his eyes off of you. His ears are open to the supplication of his children. Occasionally, I will be someplace else in the building and a small child will run up to me. And I immediately, I'm always glad to see them, but, but I also know that there's a set of eyes on that child besides mine. There's a mom or a dad or both or grandparents that are watching that child Because their eyes are on them all the time. God thinks that about you. His eyes are on you. He's with you. He sees everything you do. He sees what you do on your social media. He sees where you go. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? It, it's, It's what's amazing to me 
is how many people think if they don't come to church, God doesn't see them. (laughs) He won't know. So I'm not going in there. God won't know. He doesn't know what I'm doing. It also says that, and his ears are open to their prayers. This is an awesome picture. Let's go back to that child just ran up to me. Most of the time, and and you would do the same thing as long as you can. There may come a day I won't be able to do this anymore. Just simply kneel down to them. The kneeling down won't be a problem. It'll be getting back up will be the problem. (laughs) But here's the picture. That child comes running up to me. I kneel down to get right down into their conversation. That's what this passage says. That God is into your prayers. He has knelt down. He's come down. He's interested in your prayers. Having a vibrant prayer life is anything but easy. Satan works constantly to try to keep you from spending any time in prayer. Your mind wanders. You don't have time. I'll pray later. I got to get going. But Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees because he knows that weak saint won't remain weak if he prays. Adrian Rogers at one time was a pastor in Florida before he went to Belmont. And he said the thought came to him that God answers prayer. He said, well, I already knew that, of course, but that day the realization somehow hit me with a new force like a ton of bricks. God does indeed answer my prayer. And then he said, that being true, I would be an unmitigated fool not to pray. I read a book this week entitled Two Chairs. Some of you may have read the book. It's been out a while. I didn't know it, but I picked it up at a bargain table and read it. You take two chairs at home. It could be in the yard, lawn chairs. doesn't matter what kind of chairs they are. Just have two chairs. Sometime during that day, you go to those two chairs. You sit in one chair... And God's in the other chair. And you start talking to God. And there's basically three questions that you, that you answer. You're, you ask yourself, first of all, does God know my situation? And he does. Is my situation too big for God? And he answers no. And the third question is, does he have a plan? For me, and, and sometimes you don't know the answer to that question. Well, he's definitely got a plan for you, but you don't know the plan is for that certain situation. And so God leads you to some of your godly friends and other ways, and it talks about how that he will speak to you. But folks, just having a chair to sit down and talk to God. Why don't we talk to God? Because we don't think he'll hear us. And we think if he doesn't answer me the way I want him to, he hadn't answered me. Well, we need to have a plan to talk to God, to acknowledge his presence. 
having a good life, having a good day, boils down to having some time with the Lord. We'd all do well to take to heart the words by Ralph Cushman. I met God in the morning when my day was at its best. And his presence came like sunrise, like glory in my breast. All day long the presence lingered. All day long he stayed with me. And we sailed in perfect calmness over a very troubled sea. Other ships were blown and battered. Other ships were sore distressed. But the winds that seemed to drive them brought to us a peace and rest. Then I thought of other mornings with a keen remorse of mine when I too had loosed the moorings with the presence left behind. So I think I know the secret learned from many a troubled way. You must seek him in the morning if you want him through the day. God knows. God hears. But I want you to notice a contrast as I close. The eyes are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The reference to eyes is God's omniscience, God showing that he knows everything. But the face of God is always a matter of awe and judgment and fear in the Old Testament because God views the sufferings of the righteous as attentive to their cries, but he sets his face against those who don't know him. We speak of the grace and mercy of God, and, and those of most of us in here and in the venue and wherever we are have experienced the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God. But one day, people are going to face the judgment of God. The good news is this you can pass from unrighteousness to righteousness. Right now. Right now. You can go from lost to saved. You can go from not a child of God to a born-again child of God. Right now. And you don't have to be afraid. Because God wants you to love life. Jesus came and he said, I have come that they might have life. And life more abundantly. He wants you to love life. He did not say what they will say on television. He did not say, I'm going to make you wealthy. I'm going to give you no problems. He said, I will help you have life. Meaningful, purposeful, abundant life. But it only comes through Jesus Christ. It doesn't come through religion. It only comes through Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Pastor David. As we found today in 1 Peter 3, the apostles' formula for living and loving life involves guarding our speech, the avoidance of evil, purposing to do good, pursuing peace, and embracing God's presence in our lives. A simple but effective blueprint for joyfully living the Christian life, one that we would be well advised to emulate. Be sure to join us again for our next installment of Hope, 
series on 1 Peter. 